Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. Good on, mate. Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be finishing the story we started last week, uh, which was all about, of course, the Battle of Tours. Now, a lot of hype last week about this one being one of the most important and decisive events in the course of, uh, of human history. And, well, look, I'm here to deliver this week, at least I hope. We'll see if I can live up to that particular hype train, see if I don't fall off the end there and, uh, and, and you know, lie sprawl across the tracks. We'll see how we go. Uh, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, unusually for Half-Assed History, uh, this one is a bit sequ- sequential. You may be a bit lost in the woods if you haven't listened to the previous one. So jump back to episode 14, if you haven't already got across that one, before you tune into this one. Or just, you know, do what I did when I was in, you know, grade five and go ahead and read The Chamber of Secrets without having read uh, The Philosopher's Stone and just see if you can piece it together from from context. We'll, we'll see how we go. Anyway, last week we finished off uh, with talking about how these two armies were approaching each other in uh, towards the northern end of what we call, today call France, in Francia, as it was known, in 732. And the Franks are led by Charles, later known as Charles Martel, of course, this towering figure in history. And the Umayyads, the invading Muslim army, is uh, are led by uh, Abdul Rahman al-Ghafiqi. Now, Abdul, he's got about 50,000 troops. Estimates kind of vary here. There aren't a huge number of enormously reliable sources to pin down an exact number, but around 50,000 troops. Uh, and this army is chock full of heavy cavalry and battle-hardened veterans. These blokes looking very, very tough indeed. Going to, going to be a very hard thing for the Franks to overcome. The, but the, the thing is, as I mentioned last week, the Umayyads, they've, they've, they've stuffed up, they've, in, they've given in to this incredibly foolish sense of overconfidence and hubris. They don't really think there's going to be much of a problem scrapping as they move further, further north. They think it's going to be, you know, a pretty cruisy conquest against you know, token resistance from these barbarian Franks. And they really do consider these Europeans uh, barbarians. They, they've dismissed them as rubbish, disorganised fighters because they'd had such an, an easy time of it, you know, so far except for the one defeat at Toulouse in 721, as we talked about last week. Uh, so they didn't bother to scout ahead further north after Bordeaux and the general organisation of the Umayyada army was, uh, it was pretty bloody poor. It fell apart a bit as they're not anticipating any real resistance or trouble. Now, this lack of scouting means that they didn't learn enough about Charles and didn't respect him as a worthy adversary with... Uh, Charlie, you know, definitely, definitely using this to his advantage, the fact that he'd kind of, you know, caught them a little bit off balance, even though they didn't know. Charles already has a huge standing army, which, again, are these battle-hardened veterans that he'd made a real effort to maintain and keep around as a, as a core fighting unit. In fact, some of these soldiers had been with him so long that they'd actually been fighting alongside Charles since the days of old mate Radbot, who, you know, presumably at this stage is, you know, 50-something years old and still getting cut at the gym. Anyway... Um, this was highly unusual, highly, highly unusual at the time because usually back then uh, blokes were recruited for a campaign and then they went back to farming or making boots or you know doing whatever they did. Whereas this was a purely professional army. That's, that's, they, were, they were career soldiers, unusual at the time. And in addition to this professional army, Charles gets, he, he, I'll tell you this, he gets very, very busy and goes around levying every single soldier that he can. He trains as many soldiers as he can get his hands on, thousands and thousands and thousands of troops. And again, we don't know exactly how many, as the estimates vary pretty wildly. But we can say this, that his army, it's mainly comprised of heavy infantry, as uh, cavalry units hadn't really taken hold in Europe at this station. I actually found out why, and I, I, again, I found this quite interesting, a little little diversion here to briefly talk about this. 
The reason that cavalry units in Europe hadn't quite caught on as they had in, you know, the, in the Umayyad, in the Muslim areas, and, and you know, in, in the, the Near and the Far East, Northern Africa, is because of the stirrup. Europeans didn't have stirrups on their horses in the early 8th century. It's only in, in the 8th century that the stirrup starts to be wild, widely adopted in Europe. So previous to this, the stirrup was, of course, used popularly in other places, China uh, specifically, um, and had been adopted throughout Eastern civilizations like the Umayyads, but Europe hadn't leveled that part of their tech tree up. Now, think of this. We've been riding horses. As a species, we've been riding horses since about 3500 BCE. It's pretty bloody funny that it took us nearly 4,000 years to invent something to put our feet into while doing it. And, you know, I I tell you what, it's bloody good that it didn't take bicycle makers so long to invent the pedal. Anyway, despite a lack of cavalry, Charles has a massive army of, of highly trained and heavily armed infantry and the understanding that he had been by the, underestimated by the Umayyads. And that's going to be key as he, as he decides as he uh, begins to fight this battle. While the Umayyads are making their way towards Tours at a very leisurely pace in the last half of 732, Charles springs into action and gets his army up and marching. He has his forces not take any of the main roads, the old Roman roads that are still around, and instead he gets them to go on the old Google Maps avoid tolls route. This, this means that coupled with the generally lazy attitudes that the Umayyads have towards scouting, it means that Charles was able to choose where the battle was fought by sneaking his army into the path of oncoming invaders by going through woods and farmlands and not keeping them all together on these big roads, which again would be very easy to spot and scout out. When old mate Abdul stumbles across this Frankish army, he craps his dax in surprise because Charles has stolen the initiative and given himself a huge advantage from the outset by choosing the location of the Battle of Tours. Again, we don't know how large Charles's army is for sure. In some sources, there are indications that he was heavily outnumbered, but these are mainly Frankish sources, and they may have sort of cooked the books a little bit to make the story a better one, because other stories indicate the forces were more or less evenly matched in terms of size. So this, this hasn't been conclusively determined by historians, and I'm sure the argument will rage on. In any case, Charles either evenly matched or fewer soldiers uh, that he's brought to this, uh, to this, to this scrap here. In any case, he's parked these soldiers on top of a big, flat, wooded hill. This is perfect for facing off against an army of heavy cavalry, as it would mean a long uphill charge and then manoeuvring through trees, both of which would counter the power of a cavalry charge, which, again, devastating against, uh, against infantry. Conventional wisdom says that cavalry will wreck infantry every single time and that Charles was bonkers to even you know, attempt to bring so many footmen to a fight against mounted enemy. But here is a great example of how we see how we made the best of a very bad situation. Not only the uphill battle, also the wooded, uh, you know, the, the wooded area to break up a, a cavalry charge. Very, very cluey stuff there from Charles. Anyway, Abdul, he realises in the poop here because when he comes across these Frankish, uh, these Frankish mongrels on the top of their hill... Uh, he has to have a think about things. He has to, you know, really reconsider how he's going to fight this battle. He ends up sitting on his freckle for six days. He knows absolutely nothing about Charles's army because he hasn't done his homework. He hasn't done his scouting. He's generally at a huge loss as to how best to proceed. Charles, on the other hand, has done the whole know thine enemy thing here and has a very good idea of what he's, uh, what he's up against from the first. And, of course, he's able then to plan accordingly. On top of this, another thing that's actually important to mention here... It's October, 
and it's getting pretty bloody chilly. The Franks are used to miserable European winters, and they've come dressed accordingly. They've got their, you know, their their furs and their coats and their their heavy clothes. But uh, the the poor old Umayyads, they're dressed in bloody bing tan singlets and thongs, and they're not ready for a French winter. They're very, very underdressed. So everything is going the way of the Franks before the battle even begins. And as I say, Abdul has sat with his thumb up his bum, not really knowing what to do. And Charles is very happy about this, because as the longer the Umayyads wait, the more Frankish reinforcements arrive and the colder it's going to get. So now on the seventh day, Abdul finally makes his move. His choice is to either get up and rumble or pack up and go home. And seeing as he's come this far, he reckons he's going to have a crack. Again, cavalry are expected to be so hugely favoured against infantry that Abdul reckons he's still in with a good shot despite all the obstacles that Charles has put in his way. As a result, on the 10th of October, 732, Abdul orders the attack and his cavalry charges at the Franks who are still drawn up in a defensive phalanx on the top of the hill. The Franks withstand charge after charge after charge. These guys are disciplined, they are organised, they know what to expect and they have a very high morale so they do not break. They do not break. It is incredible and one of the only instances in history of infantry managing to fend off a full-on cavalry attack. At a few points, the cavalry do make it into the interior of this phalanx formation where, if left to attack from within, could completely ruin the Franks, but the troops inside the square fearlessly advance on heavy cavalry and slaughter them, which again is unbelievable. While this is all going on on the hill, Charles has now sent off his scouts to the Umayyads camp, where, and here, the scouts free Umayyad prisoners, raid supplies, generally just tear things to bits, and raise hell. Now, hilariously, when the Umayyads learn that their camp is under attack, they think the Franks are after their treasure, all the stuff that they'd plundered from the Bordeaux and the like, and a huge proportion of the Umayyads abandon the battle to return to camp to secure their plunder and booty, just like when you're, you know, you're playing sort of uh, more forward in Overwatch, and then you know a tracer or something sneaks behind your lines and goes and starts capturing the points, like, five people go back to deal with the one tracer and you, you get left there because, you know, you're trying to keep the keep the, the, the line where you decided you were going to hold it. So, well done, Ormiads. You fell right into the bloody, the, the bronze level quick play trap there. Congratulations. Anyway, but it gets worse than this even for the Ormiads because the ones who have gone back to protect their treasure, this seen by other Ormiads. They see all these people, you know, heading back to camp to, to secure the, their booty and they think they're retreating. So a bunch of the a bunch of the Umayyads who have seen these other blokes retreating to well not retreating but running back to you know defend the camp they think oh bloody hell the battle's over we're, we've lost we're running away and so they turn tail and start running away from the Franks this leaves poor old Abdul who is trying to stop the retreat surrounded in the middle of the battlefield because all of his troops are obsessed with their loot and they've all buggered off he's not being guarded or protected and I'll tell you this the poor bastard gets himself killed while trying to rally his troops now after the Umayyads bugger off like this and after Abdul gets cool, killed. The Franks form up again on the hill and wait for the next day where they presume the battle will continue. But it doesn't, because the next day when the sun comes up, the Umayyads aren't even there. Now, Charles, he's not going to be taken, he's not going to be taken in here. He immediately suspects some kind of chicanery, some kind of silly buggers going on here. And so he orders his troops to stay in formation and not muck around while his scouts have a shifty at what's going on on the other side of the battlefield. Now, the scouts find hastily abandoned Umayyad camps. They've all buggered off. They've all left with their tails between their legs with as much of their loot as they could carry. Because what happens with this? 
all of the remaining Umayyad leaders, they were squabbling like chooks over who was going to be the next big cheese. And so the army just loses all momentum. They're forced to give it up as a bad job and bugger off back to Iberia. And that was that. Charles wins the day, he wins the battle, and he earns himself the nickname The Hammer or Martel, Martellius in Latin there. Um, and as people wrote about this battle and about how Charles had won the day, he ends up earning this, you know, this enormously uh, well-deserved reputation as, as a master commander, a, a, a military genius. And uh, he also actually won a lot more than that, uh, as, as we'll discover in a tick. We'll, we'll talk about what happened here, the aftermath of the battle here. So the Umayyads, they end up losing about 10,000 troops all told, and the Franks, on the other hand, they lose about 1,500. So, uh, you know, an absolute bloodbath in, in, in the favour of the Franks there. Now, after turning tail back into Iberia, the Umayyads, they never again make significant further progress into Europe after this. They're driven back past the Pyrenees by 760, by the descendants of Charles. And after that, the Muslims in Iberia, they don't really go anywhere for about 700 years. They stick around until almost the 16th century, uh, when uh, this is at the time that the, the very last remnants of the old Umayyad Caliphate are driven out of the Iberian Peninsula during the Granada War. Anyway, on the other side of things, Charles, he goes on to fight and conquer and, and generally just you know ruin stuff all up and down the battlefields until he became uh, the King of the Franks in 737. He also instituted a lot of political reform through his kingdom, heavily influencing how feudalism developed throughout Frankish-controlled regions. And after he died, he split up his kingdom between his sons, Carloman and Pepin. Carloman became the first Carolingian, or Carling, which, again, was one of the most important political dynasties in European history. But not to be outdone, Pepin was the father of Charlemagne, who ended up being the first Western European emperor since the Romans. So overall, it's fair to say that just based on that, Charles Martel was a pretty bloody important bloke in history. But here... We have to zoom out even further and consider Charles Martel and the, and the Battle of Tours from an even wider view of world history. Now, as I've already banged on about, you know, several times throughout these episodes here, the Battle of Tours has been identified as a turning point in world history. As, as it was the point at which Islamic, the Islamic invasion of Christian Europe came to an end. Its significance is debated by historians to this very day, as one side claims that the Battle of Tours is the only reason that Europe itself isn't Islamic, while the other claims that the importance of the battle is, is enormously overstated. Obviously, we're well into the world of speculation here, so there's not going to be you know, anything conclusive, but it's still interesting and pretty bloody important to think about stuff like this. Calling the Battle of Tours the battle that saved Europe is a very, very easy thing to do. But is it true? And did it change the world forever? As I said, the arguments go both ways. So let's have a look at them. Here's the arguments in favour of the statement that the Battle of Tours is, is the battle that saved Europe and changed the world. The first thing to consider is that areas that had been conquered by Muslims previously, from Syria to Egypt to Morocco, saw Islamic culture entrenched deeply enough to have eradicated the previous cultures and religions of those respective regions. And this culture remains deeply entrenched in these areas even today, over a thousand years later. There's evidence to suggest that the Umayyads were bent on invasion and conquest and that they had a very, very clear objective to bring an end to Christian Europe. Given their track record of very successful empire building and conquering, as evidenced by the current distribution of the Islamic faith in today's world, it's fair to assume that without the Battle of Tours, the Umayyads would have continued to expand the caliphate and spread their culture and religion as far and as wide as they could, just as they'd done elsewhere. So, 
assuming the Umayyads has brought Europe under their control, would Islamic culture have been similarly entrenched throughout their new lands? And if so, would it have lasted as long as it has done in other regions? In other words, would Europe today be like Northern Africa and the other areas that were controlled by the, uh, the Umayyad Caliphate and still have a deeply entrenched Islamic culture? But setting that aside, setting that aside for one second, setting aside whether Europe would or wouldn't have been dominated by Islam rather than Christianity throughout the Middle Ages, there's another angle to consider here. The legacy of Charles Martel. This battle propelled him to political supremacy in Francia and... Recognising the potential threat of further incursion from Iberia, Charles established a political dynasty that was constructed specifically to resist it. He unified the Franks, he strengthened them with a a lack of petty, small-scale political disputes, because now, instead of fighting amongst themselves, the Franks were able to defend with a united front, they were able to defend themselves against any further invasion from across the Pyrenees from Iberia. After his death, his children and his grandchildren established a political power system that went on to dominate the development of Christian Europe throughout the Middle Ages, with Charlemagne becoming known as the father of Europe after having unified most of the western half of the continent. Also also worth considering here is that if the Umayyads had succeeded at Tours, and if Charles Martel had been defeated there weren't really any military forces left that could have stood up to them. Francia represented the biggest and most unified military power in all of Europe at the time. And with the defeat of Charles, picking off the smaller and less powerful European states that extended further out east wouldn't have been anywhere near as challenging as the Battle of Tours. So in conclusion... The people who reckon the Battle of Tours is an event of huge importance to world history claim that Europe would have been conquered by an Islamic empire and that Charles' incredibly influential legacy would have instead been just basically nothing, and this would mean that the world would be unrecognisable to us today. Let's have a look at the other side of the coin and the arguments against the Battle of Tours being this earth-shattering event that, uh, that we've made it out to be so far. The first argument here is that the Umayyad army wasn't there to conquer. They just wanted to loot and pillage and have a great time uh, in northern Francia with all of its rich monasteries. If that's the case, then the Battle of Tours wasn't critical to the survival of Christian Europe, as the Umayyads would instead would have cut and run after having given Charles a hiding. This means that rather than facing off against an invading force that was hell-bent on bringing Europe into the Caliphate, Charles instead defended what was essentially a huge raiding party. This argument is supported by the suggestions that, uh, that Abdul's army couldn't sustain itself much longer, it didn't have very reliable supply lines, and was a huge distance from its base, which was in modern-day Tunisia. So if this is true, then the army wouldn't have been able to conquer as it did in Iberia due to a, a lack of an ability to project itself and maintain political power throughout Francia. Another argument on top of this raiding party argument, another one to think about, is that the this battle was just another conflict in a region that had people blooming over more or less anything and everything, and that the cards have, could have fallen in any other number of ways. Now, accepting this argument would mean that there is nothing intrinsically special about the Battle of Tours, and that it was just one of many being fought at the time. And at the time, Frankie was fighting with Aquitaine, and there continued to be political and military struggles throughout Frankish Europe well after the Battle of Tours. So the point is this. This battle, which was just one of many fought for loot, land and power, just happened to be between Christians and Muslims rather than Christians and Christians, like so many other conflicts at the time were. But the most interesting argument, the most interesting argument here, is that the Battle of Tours is the equivalent of tabloid history and has just been blown up out of proportion 
to serve political and religious interests over the centuries. Because kings and popes have had years and years to mythologize this battle and spin it into this world-changing event, which may not have been that crucial or that definitive. As I said before, it's very easy to call the Battle of Tours the battle that saved Europe, as it generates interest and it creates an engaging and highly sensationalised story. And the fact that you are sitting here listening to me say this right now means that this argument must have some weight because this works. We're not talking about the Battle of Hamath in 605 BCE or the Battle of Cohen in 1293 or any other number of battles. We're talking about the Battle of Tours because... It is touted as one of the turning points in world history because it is the sort of history that lends itself to sensationalism and easy engagement. In other words, because it's exactly the sort of history that this podcast is all about. In any case, whether the Battle of Tours was or was not a major turning point in world history, it is still a bloody ripper tale. And it's pretty interesting to consider the world might have been a very different uh, place if only Abdul Rahman al Ghafiqi had sent some bloody scouts out. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That finally is the end of the story of the Battle of Tours. And a little bit of historical speculation there at the end to talk about, again, its significance or potentially lack of significance. We're going to wrap up the show as usual. Halfhousehistory.net is the website for this podcast. It's there you can find all episodes and links to things like the contact page, halfhousehistory at gmail.com. You can send me through an email. You find our Twitter at halfhousehistory without an O. Wouldn't fit. Very annoying. And uh, we've also got a Patreon if you want to chuck us a couple of bucks. I keep saying us. I don't know why I'm using the the royal we in this situation. It is just me. I'm going to start. I'm going to stop saying we in these outros because it's just me sitting in my apartment with a doona literally propped up by a couple of chairs and a ladder behind me to avoid the echo. Anyway, this is not a you know professional million dollar studio attempt at a, at a you know a, a, again. It's in the name. You're listening to a podcast called Half-Assed History. I don't think you can reasonably put your expect expectations up all that high. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up the show, of course, with another question posed on Reddit this week. Reddit historian J-Mac is asking us, I mean, we've talked about Muslims, we've talked about uh, the, the spread of the, the Islamic faith, and we've talked about, uh, you know, many of the mysteries involved with, uh, with the Islamic faith. And uh, J-Mac wants to know, why do all Muslims read Korean? <laughs> <laughs>